Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for beautiful Easter worship this morning. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 15 and also find your place to Mark chapter 1. You remember 13 weeks ago we began a sermon series from the Mark and Gospel that would climax today on Resurrection Sunday. Crucifixion. Josephus said that crucifixion is the most wretched of all ways of dying. The Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, makes it clear from Deuteronomy 21, for he is accursed of God who hangs on a tree. By demanding that Jesus die an excruciating Notice the word crucify as the root of that, an excruciating death. The religious authorities and the crowds they influenced were seeking to make sure that Jesus Christ died accursed by God. They succeeded, Paul writes. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Galatians 3. In Christ's crucifixion, we receive our salvation, receiving the wrath of God on our behalf. The death of God in Christ both satisfies the demands of the law and sets us free to live in the realm of grace. The Romans used crucifixion to intimidate the populace. Jesus and the two thieves who were crucified would be paraded through the busy streets carrying their cross beams themselves, previously weakened by Pilate scourging. Jesus needs the help of a bystander, Simon of Serene, to bear the burden of the beam on his back. Decreasing their sensitivity to the raw pain of the process, the criminals were often offered a narcotic to drink by kind women. The practice emerges from Proverbs 31, give strong drink to him who is perishing, give wine to him whose life is bitter. But Jesus refused the painkiller, rather choosing to suffer completely through the cup that God had set before him. Depending on the physical condition of the condemned, crucifixion took place several hours later. In the case of Jesus, the crucifixion began at 9 a.m. and was finished six hours later at 3 o'clock p.m. And like every display of violence, it drew a crowd, the crucifixion of Jesus and the thieves. And then when the crucified is in a weak position, that's the time to hurl the insults. Hey, you said tear down the temple and you'd put it back in three days. But look at 1532. The strongest of the insults, if you will come down so that we can both see and believe. I want you to remember the word see. If you'll just come down from that cross... The religious authorities hurled to Jesus, then we can see and then we will believe. 
Well, let's outline our passage this morning this way. First of all, breathing his last breath, 1533 through 37. Breathing his last breath. Darkness descends upon the earth from the sixth hour, 12 noon, until the ninth hour, 3 o'clock p.m. At the brightest time of the day, at noontime until 3, the darkness overtakes the sun. Let me remind you the Old Testament association of darkness with the ominous work of God. Among the plagues of Egypt for three days, a thick darkness descended upon the land. Or what about Jeremiah or Joel or Amos? All those prophets say darkness means God's judgment is at work. If you ever really read the Amos passage in Amos 8, it reads this way. I shall make the sun go down at noon. What happened during the crucifixion? The sun went down at noon. And even more eerily, I want you to understand that in Amos, Amos 8.10, it says, the sun goes down at noon because it is a time of mourning for an only son. So it is the crucifixion of Jesus. Still others say this darkness relates to the fact that before the last plague, the death of the firstborn, darkness came, darkness, then death, and in this case, darkness and then death. And during the darkness, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This cry of abandonment from Psalm 22 in one way, it is so sad that the last words from the lips of Jesus in the Mark and Gospel are the cry of abandonment. God, you have abandoned me, forsaken me. And yet in Psalm 22, in context, a song that Jesus would have known so well, at the end there is hope and vindication. And even as he quotes the part of the psalm, he requires our minds to go to the end to resurrection and hope and joy and vindication. Those belittling Jesus are certain he's crying out for the prophet Elijah, who is supposed to be the forerunner to come and rescue him. And someone says, get him some wine, moisten his lips. Let's let him live long enough to watch Elijah arrive. And then he gives a, a last cry from the cross, Mark says, and he breathes his last. The second portion the tearing of the temple veil. The tearing of the temple veil. Turn back to, to Mark chapter 1. The tearing of the temple veil is in 1538, but I, I want you to notice some parallels back in Mark chapter 1 at the baptism of Jesus. Look at Mark 1.9. And it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening. The word there is rip, schizo, opening. And the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out from the heavens, thou art my beloved son, and thee I'm well pleased. Now back to 1538. 
This final scene in Jesus' life has a lot of parallels with the beginning of his ministry. We're sort of bookended with similar stories. For example, in both of them, Elijah plays a prominent role for John the Baptist was one, Luke tells us, who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He is the forerunner. During the transfiguration, the disciples asked Jesus, but what about Elijah? What about the forerunner? And they said, oh, he, he's already come, Jesus replied. And they did with him as they will. So in both cases, we have a, a prominent role of the forerunner Elijah, but also in both cases, we have this ripping open. In fact, the verb for ripping or opening there is used only twice in Mark, at the baptism and at the crucifixion. And in both cases, something that is holy, that has been veiled or covered or roped off, is now made available. In Mark 1... Schizo, the heavens are ripped open. In Mark 15, 38, the temple veil from top to bottom is ripped open. And, and some say it stands as a prophetic judgment that the temple will fall, as Jesus has said. And there's some truth to that. But even more than that, it means that God, who was so far away and so roped off, is now completely available the baptism, the heavens open up. At the crucifixion, the temple veil opens up, and God is now available. Here's a, a third outline, declaring his identity, 1539. This is a, a third parallel as well between the baptism. You remember the baptism of Jesus. There's this loud voice trumpeting from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It is the declaration of identification. At the baptism, the thunderous voice of the father from heaven. That's my boy and I'm pleased. And now, not the voice of God, but the voice of one who has the insight of God, the centurion. Amongst the strange darkness in which he stood, the ripping of the veil of the temple, would Jesus cry out, Eloi, Eloi, Laba Sabachthani? centurion, a Gentile, says, truly this was the Son of God. Look at verse 39. Truly this was the Son of God. All throughout the message in Mark, there's been this messianic secret. And every time somebody wanted to identify Jesus as the Christ, Messiah, they were told to be quiet until this time. And now that this time has finally arrived, as readers of the gospel of Mark, we're excited that it's no other than a Gentile, a soldier at that, who's participating in the crucifixion, who now declares his faith openly, and he identifies the Messiah even as God had at the beginning of the book, truly. This was 
the Son of God. Son of God was a term used for Caesar. Once loyal to Caesar, now he has a new Son of God. Now he sees Jesus for who he is. So at the baptism, we have a, a forerunner, whether John the Baptist dressed like Elijah, being the forerunner. In both cases, we have a, a ripping open that makes the holy now available. And in both cases, we have the divine identification of Jesus. Here's a fourth part of the outline. Looking on for a distance. Look at 40 and 41. And there were also some women looking on from a distance among who were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who had come up to him to Jerusalem. As the story progresses, Mark now mentions the Galilean women who played such a vital part in the passion narrative, Mary from the town of Magdala, from whom Jesus had cast out the demons, and then Mary that we know less about, and then Salome, the wife of Zebedee, the, the mother of the thund thunderous boys, James and John. But make, make no mistake, it is the women who are chosen to give the greatest weight of testimony to both the crucifixion, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Women whose testimony wouldn't even be allowed in court in that day because, well, it's from a woman, are the ones chosen by God the Father to tell the story about his son. While the men have all left him and fled, the women remain and they see the death, they watch the placement of the burial, and they come back for the anointing. The woman, the women, watching at a distance. 42, the claiming of the corpse. A member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, he claims the body of Jesus. He's a member of the Jewish high court. Can you imagine the courage? In fact, Mark tells us he has to muster up the courage to go to the Roman officials and request that the body of Jesus be granted him that he can give it proper burial. He's coming out in his faith. He was looking for the kingdom of God. Make sure Jesus is dead, Pilate says. They check. He is. The body is given. Notice Joseph wrapping himself, the body, in the linen and placing it there in the tomb. And Joseph himself with the stone. Joseph claiming the corpse in 42 through 47. And then we come to chapter 16, the rising from the dead. And when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. 
And entering the tomb, they saw a, a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. The greatest words of the gospel. He has risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they put his body. But go and tell the disciples, and, and Peter, he's going before you into Galilee, and there you will, notice the word, see him, just as he said to you. The best manuscripts of Mark end at verse 8. In fact, if you look at verse 9, you probably got a bracket or a star or an italics. Those are added verses because people didn't like the ending. This is the real ending of Mark, verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. In fact, in the Greek text, it's kind of bad grammar in the English translation. They said nothing to nobody, for they were afraid. Don't be amazed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. But go and tell, tell Peter and tell the other disciples to make their way to Galilee and you will see him there. But they said nothing to nobody because they were afraid. The women are going to anoint the body of Jesus. Surely you didn't miss at the house of Simon the leper in chapter 14. We had a woman anoint the body of Jesus, and they tried to stop her. Don't waste your money. And Jesus said, she's anointing me for my burial. Book ends again. The house of Simon and here. Women intending to anoint the body of our Lord. When the words when the Sabbath was over in 16.1 tell us why they hadn't done it before. They weren't looking for a resurrected Jesus. They were buying the spices. They were making the effort. They fully expected to find a body and have to tend to that body. They were prepared to anoint the corpse of a man. Mark makes known that on the first day of the week, the sun had risen. When the sun had risen. In Scripture, most often help comes in the morning. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Psalm 30. The darkness of crucifixion has gone, the darkness at noonday till three, and now the light has returned. These women had seen where the body of Jesus had been placed. They knew exactly where they are going. Mark had already told you they had watched it all, and they were pondering as they went, how are we going to re remove this five or six-foot stone, hundreds of pounds, 16 Mark wants you to know, in this case, the stone was especially extremely large. 
John's gospel tells us they stoop in, discovering the stone removed. They're looking for a body which to bury. And there's a, a man in dazzling white, and he says, don't be amazed. You are looking for Jesus and Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. But go and tell Peter and the other disciples, Peter mentioned by name to show us that even failing followers of the Christ can be restored. Peter who denied him thrice before the cock crowed twice. Go tell Peter, go tell the disciples to go on to Galilee and you will see him. Do you remember earlier what the religious authorities had hurled at Jesus on the cross? You come down that we can both see and believe. They're not the ones who got to see and believe. It was the disciples who went to Galilee, and they shall see him. Now, surely Mark means much by the word see. They will see him physically, but also now, having seen him crucified, they will see him as the resurrected Son of God, that those who have eyes will fully see. With the learning Of the resurrection of Jesus, there's always a responsibility. Look at verse 7. But go and tell. The fact of the empty tomb of Jesus always comes with an assignment. Go and tell. Go and tell Peter. Go and tell the other disciples, go and tell. And that odd ending, they didn't say nothing to nobody because they were afraid. We don't like it when books end that way just abruptly, do we? Just a sudden halt, and you want it to be tied into a neat package. I think by ending it this way, Mark draws his reader into the story, and now it is your responsibility, having come to the tomb with the ladies and having entered with them, having seen the character and dazzling white who says, He has risen, He is not here, but go and tell. Now it's you. You've learned of the resurrection. And now you have the assignment. And they said, nothing to nobody. Which means we better say something to somebody. He is risen. He is not here. Turn back to Mark chapter 1 one more time as we close.
How did our story start so many weeks ago? Mark wrote, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He starts out by telling us he's, he's going to tell us a story, a good news story about the very Son of God. And as we walk through this gospel, he begins to do things that only God can do. He heals the sick and he casts out demons and he even raises a dead daughter. He teaches as one with authority. He's transfigured into dazzling garments of white. He enters the city to the cries and shouts of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He breaks the bread and says it's his body. He takes the cup and says it's his blood. This is the story of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the whirlwind begins in Mark, and everything he does shows you he's the Son of God. And finally, at the end, in the midst, one who helped crucify him sees the darkness, the strange darkness at noon, and at three o'clock, Jesus cries out, the most unlikely character in all the book tells the greatest truth. Truly, this one was, is the Son. The Son of God. There has never been a story told like this before. There will never be a story told like this again. This is the story of the one and only redeeming Son of God. It's the only story. And this story means that you and I have to say something to somebody. Let us pray. Oh God, even as we gather and worship this morning, this story is our hope. Even this year, many in this room have stood around the graveside of someone they love, and we've entrusted him, we've entrusted her to this story. Do not be amazed. Jesus of Nazarene, he was crucified. 
He has risen. He is not here. Go and tell. Amen.